Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, continuing on uh, our sutta series, <clears throat> tonight I wanted to um, explore with you um, three uh, connected or related uh, discourses from uh, the middle-length collection of discourses. Middle-length, or also known as the Majima Nikaya. Majima means middle. middle. Um, and, um, or middle-length. Um, and they're discourses to uh, this uh, disciple someone who became a disciple uh, of the Buddha's name Vachagata. And this is uh, Majima number 71, 72, and 73. Um, And it's kind of interesting seeing somebody's spiritual development And he has, he he hung around the Buddha a lot uh, before he became eventually ordained and uh, became a monk and a deep practitioner. Mm. Wouldn't that be cool to just kind of follow the Buddha around or, you know, check in with him every now and then? He was, uh, I I did a little bit of uh, looking him up. Uh, It doesn't say much in the, in the uh, discourse, but he was a Brahmin. It came from Brahmin caste, uh, and he had done uh, Brahmin Brahmanic uh, practices um, and studied with uh, some other teachers. But he was uh, he kept on being drawn to the Buddha, so he would just hang out with them and hear a discourse or two, and then he kept on coming around. So, uh, the first discourse, is, it's kind of interesting. I'll give you a little bit of the, mm, the flavor of it, the context of it. And one interesting, or one point that I find particularly interesting, um, it starts out, Thus have I heard, which by the way, most of these discourses start out with, Thus have I heard. I haven't said, I didn't say this last week. Thus have I heard. Uh, is Ananda recounting this discourse after the Buddha passed. There was a great council of of the Buddha's main disciples and uh, enlightened beings, uh, and they invited Ananda, who was with the Buddha for the last 25 years of his life, and also had perfect recall, as it was said, was a, a very important member of the council. So he starts out, this is him saying, thus have I heard, this is what I heard, this is what I remember. And then he tells the, the discourse. <clears throat> On one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was living at Vasali in the great wood in the hall with the peaked roof. 
Now on that occasion, the wanderer Vachagata was staying in the wanderer's park of the single white lotus mango tree. Okay. Then when it was morning, the blessed one dressed, the Buddha got dressed, and taking his bowl and outer robe, he went into Visali for alms. Then the blessed one, the Buddha thought to himself, it's still too early to wander for alms in Visali. Suppose I went to the wanderer of Achagata in the wanderer's park of the single white lotus mango tree. Now I think that's an interesting one right there. The Buddha says, okay, time to get up, go for my alms. And then he says, wait a minute, it's too early. So there's a real humanness to the Buddha. You ever do that? You know, you wait. Now it's daylight savings time just started, you know, and it's like your time sense gets a little bit distorted. Oh, wait, wait, no, 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 it's still too early. Okay. So then it occurs to him, hmm, maybe I'll pay that guy Vachagata a visit. Just out of the blue, which he does. So he goes up to uh, to Vachagata, who is thrilled to see the Buddha. And uh, he says, Yo, please come, venerable sir, welcome. It's a long time since you found an opportunity to come here. Please be seated. So he was a Brahmin, so, and uh, I guess the Buddha would pay respects to, uh, I don't know whether he was a patron or what, but he said, no, I'm going to go visit that guy, Vachagata. Um, so then, as soon as he gets the Buddha all to himself, he starts asking lots of questions. Mm. And, uh, and I'll share with you these questions in a moment, but I just, I want to just interject this. Um, you might have a lot of questions about practice. When you, if you do, if they're sincere questions, not just to shoot the breeze or to debate or whatever, if you have a real sincere question in, in your heart about, uh, about the Dharma or about practice, then you know, within reason and within a, the appropriate uh, context, uh, it's good to get those questions answered because sometimes you can be snagged and say, I just, what it, what's, what's the real deal here? And sometimes that can really um, get in the way of you completely surrendering. And I can, I can tell you from my own experience, I had, I was ready to get into this and I, I did, did get into this, but once I really, the more I got into it in my earlier years of practice, I had lots of questions. And I remember as I was going over these discourses, I remember um, I did a lot of retreats and often in those days at the end of a discourse, uh, you could just go up to the teacher's and ask questions. Or sometimes in the hall, I would just, uh, after a sitting, 
I just had to uh, have have a question answered. It would really be bugging me. And I was a very shy person, but there was I wasn't going to be shy about my spiritual uh, endeavors. And I remembered Joseph at one point. He saw me coming, and he he knew that I was very sincere. And he said, with I think um, real affection, "Oh, it's the nudnik coming." And if you're not familiar, the word nudnik is kind of like, "Oh, the 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 pain in the neck," you know, <laughs> you know. Oh, it's the botherer. You what? What do you got for me? And but he said it with a lot of affection, and he said that this that people asking him questions was his karma coming back to him because he had so many questions when he started that um, when he, he was uh, in the Peace Corps in, uh, in Thailand and he, had, he was a philosophy major, um, graduated from uh, Columbia University and he had so many questions that he said when the the monks heard that he was coming or saw him coming, they left. Some of them left. Oh, God, this guy with all his questions, right? <clears throat> but it's a good thing if they're coming from a very sincere place. Uh, so don't be shy about that. And I also remember studying with, uh, I've, I've shared this, studying with Punjaji, who was another very uh, significant teacher of mine, an Advaita teacher. And I went there, this is in uh, 1990, and um, I had lots of questions. And he was so incredibly patient, he say, give me all your questions. You know, and I had, I gave a lot of questions. Any more questions? And I'd say, well, Punjaji had this. Give me all your questions. Get them out on the table. So anyway, I'm reminded of that when I hear this discourse. So here's the first one. Um, Venerable Sir, I've I've heard this, that the recluse Gautama, the Buddha, claims to be omniscient and all-seeing, to have complete knowledge and vision thus, whether I'm walking or standing or sleeping or awake, knowledge and vision are continuously and uninterruptedly present to me. Venerable Sir, do those who speak thus say what has been said by you and not misrepresent you? So he's saying, people have said, you are omniscient. You know everything. Is that what you've said? Is that the truth? Do you know everything? All there is to know? And the Buddha says, Vacha, those who say thus do not say what has been said by me, but misrepresent me with what is untrue and contrary to the fact. So he says, no, I am not omniscient. I don't know everything with this caveat. Mm-hmm. Um, if you s- answer thus, that the recluse Gotama has the threefold true knowledge, 
you will be saying what has been said by me and will not misrepresent me. Um, The threefold knowledge. Insofar as I wish, I recollect my manifold past lives. That is one birth, two births, all the way. It said that before he was enlightened, he recalled his previous 100,000 births. That's a very busy night, but... uh, there he was seeing all of his lifetimes. And this is one of the uh, powers that can come with a mind that uh, can be developed, particularly in concentration, that you, um, you can see past lives. So that's one of his threefold uh, knowledge understandings. Um, and insofar as I wish with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the normal human, I see beings passing away and reappearing, uh, reappearing, inferior and superior, fortunate and unfortunate, and I understand how beings pass on according to their actions. So he could penetrate the workings of karma. Oh, this happened in this lifetime, and that's why this person is in having this lifetime and such and such. So he, can, he could see past lives of others and the, the unfolding of karma. Second knowledge. Third, by realizing for myself with direct knowledge, I here and now enter upon and abide in the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints. So basically, I know Nibbana very well. So that's, those are the threefold knowledge. And then he says, um, It said in one discourse, in one note here, that he can direct his attention to know what is knowable by humans, at least what was knowable in that time. That he doesn't know everything at the same time, but he can, he could direct attention and have access to that. This is what it says also in one of the notes. Who knows? But I think it was pretty good to say, I'm not omniscient. I don't know. I don't know it all. Then Vacha asks uh, another question in this first sutta, which is almost finished. Um, Master Gotama, is there any householder who without abandoning householdership on the dissolution of the body has made an end to suffering. That is to say, are there householders who can become fully enlightened all the way to arhatship, which is the final, the fourth stage of enlightenment? And he says, um, uh, no, that in his mind, without abandoning householdership, that you, in his understanding, or his, his perspective, you can't become a completely free, um, fourth stage, fully enlightened being. However, 
Then he says, well, are there householders who, whose body, uh, who after dissolution, whose body has gone to heaven? And they believe in hell, heaven realms in, in Buddhist uh, cosmology. Vajra says, oh, not only 100 or 2 or 3 or 400, far more householders who, when upon dying, can, uh, can go to a heaven realm. And so that's enough for this, this one. Okay, and you might say, well, what about other than fourth stage of enlightenment? Well, that comes in the next discourse. So... The second one, here he is. The wanderer of Achagata went to the Blessed One this time and exchanged greetings. And here he just lets it rip with questions. Okay? I have some questions for you. <clears throat> How is it? Does Master Gautama hold the view the world is eternal? Only this is true, anything else is wrong. The Buddha says, I do not hold that view. Then does Master Gautama hold the view, the world is not eternal, only this is true, anything else is wrong? I do not hold that view. Then does Master Gautama hold the view, the world is finite, only this is true, anything else is wrong? No, I don't hold that view. The world is infinite. No, I do not hold that view. Well, do you hold the view the soul and the body are the same? I do not hold that view. Do you hold the view that the soul is one thing and the body is another? I do not hold that view. Do you hold the view after the death, after death, a Tathagata, that is a Buddha, still exists? Are you still around after you die? I do not hold to that view. Then, do you hold the view after death you do not exist? Vacha, I do not hold to that view. Do you hold the view after, a, after death a Tathagata both exists and does not exist? No, I don't hold that view either. Well, do you hold the view after a Tathagata, after death, a Tathagata both exists and does not exist? No, I don't hold that view either. <clears throat> oh, after death, a Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist? No, I don't hold that view either. And then he says, uh, how is it then? <laughs> I've asked each of these ten questions and you keep on replying, I don't hold to that view. What danger does Master Gotama see that he does not take up any of these speculative views? Vacha, the speculative view that the world is eternal is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a vacillation of views, a fetter of views. It is beset by suffering, by vexation, by despair, and by fever. And it does not lead to disenchantment, that is, breaking the spell, 
to the cessation, to peace, the direct knowledge, to enlightenment. It doesn't lead to nibbana. And then he says the same thing with all the other nine questions. He says, he's asked, then does Master Gautama hold any speculative view at all? Vacha, speculative view is something that the Tathagata has put away. For the Tathagata has seen Vacha this, such as material form, what the Tathagata has seen is this, such as material form, such as its origin, such as its disappearance, such is feeling, its origin, its disappearance, perception. Here he goes through the five skandhas. I've seen all of the, the five skandhas. This is where how it arises. This is how it disappears. Um, and therefore, I say, with the destruction and the fading away, cessation, giving up, and relinquishing of all conceivings, all excogitations, all eye-making, mind-making, the Tathagata is liberated through not clinging. And then comes a whole other series of questions. Well, when a bhikkhu's mind is liberated thus, where does he reappear after death? The term reappears does not apply, vacha then does he not reappear? The term does not reappear does not apply, Vacha. Then he both reappears and does not reappear? The term both reappears and does not reappear does not apply. You can see he's not getting a whole lot of uh, to hang on. Well, look, when I ask Oh, and neither appear nor not, not reappear does not apply. Well, look, I asked these four questions and you keep on saying it doesn't apply. Here, I've fallen into confusion and the measure of confidence I've gained through previous conversations with you has now disappeared. I'm getting a little frustrated here and I don't know, is there anything that I can believe and he says, it's enough to cause you be- bewilderment, Vacha, enough to cause you confusion. For this Dhamma, Vacha, is profound. It's hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. It's hard for you to understand it when you hold another view, except another teaching. And this is when he was still a Brahmin. Uh, approve of another teaching. So I shall. So I'm going to question you. I'm going to give you a few questions and just see how you would respond. I'll question you about this in return and answer as you choose. What do you think, Vacha? Suppose a fire were burning before you. Would you know this fire is burning before me? I would. If someone were to ask you, Bacha, what does this fire burning before you burn in dependence on? What, what, is it, what does it need to burn? What would you answer? 
people being asked that, I'd answer, this fire burning before me burns in dependence on grass and sticks. It needs fuel. Mm. Now, if that fire before you were to be extinguished, would you know this fire before me has been extinguished? I would, Master Gautama. Well, if someone were to ask you, when that fire before you was extinguished, to which direction did it go? Did it go to the east? Did it go to the west? Did it go to the north? Did it go to the south? Being asked that, what would you answer? Uh, I'd say that doesn't really apply, Master Gautama. The fire burned in dependence on its fuel of grass and sticks. When that's used up, if it doesn't get any more fuel, being without fuel, it is reckoned as extinguished. So too, Acha. The Tathagata has abandoned that material form by which one describing me might describe. He's cut it off at the root, made it like a palm stump, done away with it so it's no longer subject to future arising. The Tathagata is liberated from reckoning in terms of material form. And the term reappears does not apply. The term does not reappear does not apply. The term both reappears and does not reappear doesn't apply. And neither reappears nor doesn't reappear does not apply. And the same thing about feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. There's no, there's nowhere it goes or doesn't go. The outness cannot say it's gone anywhere or hasn't reappeared. Mm. So that's the, that's basically, he says, okay, that's really far out. Okay, I think I, I got it. Um, this is really great. Let me just chew on this for a while. And then comes the third discourse. <clears throat> Sometime later. <clears throat> it's at a different place, the squirrel's sanctuary. The wanderer of Achagata went to the Blessed One. I've had some conversations with Master Gotama for a long time. It would be good if Master Gotama would teach me in brief the wholesome and the unwholesome. He's saying, I've been asking you a lot of questions. Maybe it's time to, to learn something from you. Teach me, teach me the wholesome and the unwholesome in brief. He doesn't want a whole long discourse. Just, just give me the essence of it. And the Buddha says, I can teach you the wholesome and the unwholesome in brief, Vacha. And I can teach you the wholesome and the unwholesome at length. Still, I'll teach you the wholesome and the unwholesome in brief. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, sir. And then the Buddha starts. Vacha. Greed is unwholesome. Non-greed is wholesome. Hate is unwholesome. Non-hate is wholesome. 
delusion is unwholesome, non-delusion is wholesome. In this way, three things are unwholesome and the other three things are wholesome. And I've, as I've said before, the word wholesome and unwholesome uh, is the translation for the words um, kusala and akusala, K-U-S-A-L-A. And wholesome in this definition means leads to happiness, is a state of happiness and leads to more happiness. And unwholesome uh, is a state of suffering, which leads to more suffering. Those are the three roots of either happiness or suffering. Then he goes on. I'll tell you more about what's unwholesome and unwholesome. Killing living beings is unwholesome. Abstention from killing beings is wholesome. And then he goes through the five precepts of not killing, not stealing, not engaging in, uh, in sexual uh, relations that cause harm. And for a monk, he's saying, saying uh, being celibate. Abstain from misconduct in sexual, in sexual pleasures. It's here. Uh, abstaining Actually, he goes more than just the five precepts. He goes ten wholesome and unwholesome actions. Abstaining from uh, 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 false speech. And then uh, abstaining from harsh speech. Uh, Gossip is unwholesome. Abstaining from gossip is wholesome. Covetousness is unwholesome. Uncovetousness is wholesome. Ill will is unwholesome. Non-ill will is wholesome. That's loving kindness. Wrong view is unwholesome. Right view is wholesome. In these ten things, in this way, ten things are unwholesome. Other ten are wholesome. Um, And then he says, uh, Vacha asks him, okay, is there, apart from you, is there any other monk who by realizing for himself with direct knowledge here and now enters and abides in the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom? That is, besides you, are there any other fully enlightened beings of the monks? And he says, there's not only 100 vacha or two, or three, or four, or five hundred, but far more bhikkhus, my disciples, who have attained full enlightenment. That's pretty impressive. And then Vacha asks him, well, how about bhikkhunis? How about nuns? Are there anyone who've attained full enlightenment? And he says, there is not only 100 or 500, but far more nuns who've realized complete freedom. Then he asks, "Mm, how about is there one man lay follower, one householder who has attained up to not full enlightenment, but 
non-returner, which is like the third stage of enlightenment. Because he said before, no, okay, householders can't be fully enlightened. But he says, well, how about third stage of enlightenment? Are there any lay males that have attained that? And he says, not only 100 all the way up to 500, but far more men lay followers clothed in white, leading lives of celibacy, um, can, re- can, uh, can go to uh, the non-returner stage. That's clothed in white and being celibate. They're not monks, but they, are, um, they live a pure holy life. Then he asks, well, how about any one man lay follower who is still enjoying sensual pleasures? Can they be enlightened? And uh, who carries out your instructions and has gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others? That is, have come to at least the first stage of enlightenment. First or second stage of enlightenment. And here's something that you should know about this cosmology. Once you have attained the first stage of enlightenment in this model, it is said there's no turning back. That you are guaranteed a maximum of seven lifetimes before you finish the trip. They can, that can be done in other realms, in heaven realms, other, other realms. So it's a pretty good thing if you've gotten to the first stage of enlightenment. You're just heading in one direction. Okay. Then he asks, okay, what about women is there any one woman lay follower who uh, is, uh, is leading a, a household life who can uh, experience this? And he says, not only 100 or 500, but far more have experienced this. So then, after a recounting of all of that, uh, Vachagota says, um, just as the river Ganges inclines toward the sea, slopes toward the sea, flows toward the sea, and merges with the sea, so too Master Gotama's assembly with its homeless ones and its householders inclines towards Nibbana, slopes toward Nibbana, flows towards Nibbana, and merges with Nibbana. And he says, upon hearing that, okay. I want to go for refuge. You, uh, you, you sold me on it. All right, I'm going to do it. And then the Buddha says, well, those who want to uh, become a monk uh, or a nun, one who formerly belonged to another sect and desires going forth, uh, you have to live on probation for four months before you, uh, you become a monk. At this time, and it's interesting because in the early days, uh, somebody could say, 
I want to join the order, and and the Buddha would just say, um, say the three refuges, and you're you're in the order. But at some point, he tightened up the 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 rules because the dispensation grew so large that it it wasn't the cream of the crop coming to him, and uh, wanted to have wanted to make sure that people were were ready for their commitment. So by this time. They lived for, on probation for four months. Vachagota says, I'll live on probation for four years. You know, don't worry about it. If at the end of the four years, if the bhikkhus are satisfied me, then I'll go forward. I'll, I'll live, uh, I'll, I'll wait. As, I can be patient with this. I'm going for it. Well, he only had to do the four months. Then he says, Then the wanderer Vachagota received the going forth, and he received the full admission after the four months. Not long after his full admission, a half month after his full admission, where he was practicing a lot, two weeks after he was practicing, he said, oh, I think I attained the first stage of enlightenment. And he says, I've attained, this is the way he puts it, Tell, he, he told the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, I have attained whatever can be attained by the knowledge of a disciple in higher training at my level. I think I experienced it. Now, one of the, one of the big no-nos is you can't say that you've attained anything that you haven't attained. So you better be really on the up and up. And fortunately for him, in the Buddha's estimation, he says, uh, yep, um, you know, good going, good job. And then he says, I want to go the whole route because I'm just here at the first stage and I want to do the whole thing. So the Buddha says, hmm, in that case, you should develop two further things serenity and insight. And he gives him some practices to develop higher states of concentration because he sees that he has the potential for that and for developing some uh, extraordinary uh, powers and can actually become fully enlightened. Uh, Along... Not all arhats have to be developing those powers, but he does. And he says, you know, you've got the possibility for this. So he keeps on practicing before long, dwelling alone, withdrawn, diligent, ardent, and resolute, the venerable Vachagata, by realizing for himself with direct knowledge, here and now, entered upon and abided in that supreme goal of the holy life for the sake of of which the clansmen rightly go forth from home life into homelessness. And he directly knew, birth is destroyed, holy life has been lived, what has to be done has been done, no more coming to any state of being. And he became a fully enlightened being. And then he sees, uh, he sees a number of monks that are, that are passing by and they're on their way to see the Buddha. And he says, hey, you're going to see the Buddha? 
Tell him this. Say, may the venerable ones, just say, venerable sirs, uh, venerable sir, the bhikkhu vachagata pays homage with his head to the blessed one's feet. Then say, the blessed one has been worshipped by me. The sublime one has been worshipped by me. And that is, according to the note by Bhikkhu Bodhi, a code to say, I did it. And they said, okay, we'll pass it on to the Buddha. And they say, etc., what he says. You know, Listen, Vachagata said to say this to you. And then the Buddha answers, mm, Bhikkhus, having encompassed his mind with my own mind, I already knew that he has attained the threefold true knowledge and the great supernormal power and might. And the deities told me, the bhikkhu vachagata has attained the threefold true knowledge and that supernormal power and might. So, he got it. Doesn't quite say what exactly happened to have him get it. But uh, a few things that I get from this discourse that I want to just suggest to you. First of all, it's good to have a lot of questions, but at some point, they're not going to give you what you're really looking for the direct experience of seeing the truth. And at some point, when you've had your, your doubts answered, questions just get in the way. And one of my main instructions to people is you don't have to figure it out. Don't try to figure it out. There's a, a line that I love from the Third Zen Patriarch who says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. And when the Buddha was asked what he taught, he said, he, compared, he said, are you telling, he was asked, do you, Share with us everything that you know. And the, the Buddha picked up a handful of leaves in this famous exchange. And he said, what's more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? And the monks say, the leaves in the forest, O Lord. And he said, compared to what I know, from what I share with you, is like all the leaves in the forest compared to this handful of leaves. But all you need to know is this handful of leaves that I'm teaching you. And you can know everything you need to fully awaken. So this is a, a kind of ongoing teaching of the Buddhas 
where he says, don't think too much about it. Get your questions answered to the point where they can relieve some doubt, but let go of all the views and opinions. They just spin the mind out more and more. So before we open it up to conversation, just want to uh, invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And just see or reflect on times when you've really wanted to know the answer, whether it was to a Dharma issue or a life issue, and your mind was spinning around about it trying to figure out what the answer is. And if you can recall how it felt when your mind was spinning around and around wanting to figure out the right answer. And then recall how many times does it happen that you're able to think your way through to a deeper insight. When you're thinking really hard and trying to figure out, how often does that lead to a new understanding? And when there is a new understanding, an experience of, aha, how much figuring out and how much just letting go. And then finally, what would it be like when you spin your wheels around, if you just remembered, I don't have to figure it out. And just put it down for a little while. Just opening to the moment as it is. So we can take a few moments if there's any comments, reflections, questions.
Any questions about Dharma topics that sometimes roll around in your mind? Say, gee, I wonder what the right answer for that is. question about what is the threefold knowledge is that is that sila samadhi panya or something else no he uh threefold knowledge is uh it, as he described knowledge of his own past lives knowledge of others arising and and passing uh the karma unfolding and also um experiencing nibbana directly Yeah. I've also been thinking about karma lately. Just, mm-hmm. um, do you think that you have to believe in past lives and all that in order to take fully, in order for the karma teaching to really work? I mean, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it's a newer concept for us here in the West. Mm-hmm. Do you need to believe in past lives in order for karma to really work? Karma is working whether or not you believe it. <clears throat> so <laughs> so um, your thoughts about it don't change much as far as the karma unfolding. Uh, and as I think you know, as the Buddha said, it is one of the four imponderables that if you try to think of or figure out, uh, you can go crazy. However, on a very basic level, it's useful to understand that actions have consequences. And you don't have to be a a deep faith follower to see. You know, you practice the piano and you get better at it, generally. You practice kindness and it becomes more and more your natural way. You practice anger and that becomes the, the groove. And just like in neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together. There's a, a neuroscientifically, uh, scientific basis for it. Actions have consequences and you can see it in your life. And that is helpful to see that we do not live in a complete random universe. Uh, and that also is, kind of, is, is a central point to why someone would practice, because, why somebody would do Dharma practice. Because if it was completely random, what would be the point of practicing? but that if you're headed in a certain direction and you can cultivate certain qualities, there is a result that comes from it. And the central one, as far as Dharma practice is concerned, is if you cultivate 
mindfulness that will face you in the direction of greater freedom. So on that level, it helps to believe on at least the most rudimentary level of karma. But as far as the intricacies of karma, not so important. And as far as past lives or not past lives, it's not so important. As there's a, a famous exchange, the Buddha is asked, you know, if if this is the only lifetime, uh, is this the only lifetime, or do you keep on coming back? And he says, "Well, if it's if you keep on coming back, how would that affect you?" And the guy says, "Well, I'd want to keep on uh, purifying my my life and my heart, so I keep on having good rebirths." and do the best I can and be as loving as I can and, and, and act as wisely as I can. And the Buddha said, okay, what if this is the only time? He said, well, if this is the only time, then I, I wouldn't want to waste it being nasty and angry and having people not like me. I'd want to be as kind as I can so people could be kind back to me and uh, I'd want to see as clearly as I can so I can learn as much as I can if this is the only time. He said, just so, my friend. It doesn't matter. So, one last and then we'll go. Um, question I hear people talk about every once in a while is, you know, how many people seem to reach arhantship back in the Buddha's day and you know, is anybody really quite there all the way these days? There's, there's one person that I've come across, and that didn't meet personally, but over the internet, I guess, who claimed full arhantship. And you read through some of his website stuff, and he's pretty, sounds pretty full of himself. Yeah. And uh, uh, Inquiring Mind had an issue on enlightenment um, a couple of years back, I guess. And the one, the one piece out of that that just um, <laughs> woke me up, I suppose was Jack writing about, rather than enlightenment, um, I like to talk about enlightenments, or rather than awakening once and for all, I like to talk about awakenings. You know, we have many, uh, many of us have many awakenings on a, you know, on a daily basis or on a sitting basis up and down, and, but then we kind of, some of the fetters seem to be still present from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts about our hardship and the 21st century. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I've I've seen, I sense that there are some pretty free beings, but I have no idea. I do, uh, this is my my take on it. Like you said, enlightenments or awakenings. I think we are either free or deluded in any one moment. And rather than somebody being enlightened, there is enlightened activity. I think Suzuki Roshi coined that phrase that is expressing itself in that being or that mind stream. And that in the moment that there's not greed, hatred, and delusion, there's freedom. And... 
there can be the direction of more and more that being a place where you're abiding. So I, in my earlier days of practice, I was going for broke. And it nearly broke me. Um, and I had this concept of some final resting place. And th- I found that that didn't serve me as well as in the moment there's freedom and the more I face in the direction of cultivating the wholesome and um, deep belief in mindfulness being liberating, that all whatever happens, it's going to happen whether or not I believe in it or, or not. But as long as I'm facing in the right direction, I definitely believe and have experienced greater and greater freedom and purification. So I kind of stay away from the speculative views of the the classical four-stage model. There might be something to it, but who knows? In fact, that's... uh, If you read One Dharma, which is a really great book by Joseph Goldstein, after trying to sort out a whole lot of different views where the Tibetan view and the Theravadan view of do you come back, are you reborn or not, and all these different questions, his final response was, who knows? It's a great book. That's the punchline, though. Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? I do know that mindfulness works, and when the difference between being in a moment of of contraction and confusion and a moment of freedom. So, okay, let's uh, end loving kindness and just uh, feel the blessing of sangha. Maybe if you sense that you're facing in the right direction, feel the the grace of that. May I see clearly and fully open my heart to the truth. And may I express my love well. And know the highest happiness possible. And then sharing that with all beings, may all come to freedom and peace and share their love well. And may we share any benefit, any good karma, any merit that we've accrued accrued tonight coming here together with all beings everywhere.
Thank you. Have a great week.